Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. This is the A-side, and joining me is a voice that will be familiar to many of you out there in podcast land. He is a fellow podcast host. He is the publisher of Zero Books. He's got a YouTube channel, which is exploding. Um, I actually just joined him in YouTube land, and so I'm, I'm, the, I'm the new kid on the block, I'm the newbie. Doing somewhat similar content, but also different in its own right. Douglas Lane, thanks so much for coming on Dead Pundit Society. Glad to have you. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm a listener to your podcast, and uh, I've had you on ours, so I'm, I'm you know glad to come on yours. I wish the circumstances were better, although I should say at the start, we're going to be talking about the censorship of one of our YouTube videos. That's right. I, I should say that what's happened to our one particular video has not had any kind of tremendous impact on the channel. And yeah, it, yeah. I don't feel as though it would be fair to say that our channel has been censored or that we're facing any serious repercussions from YouTube's actions at the moment. But to me, it's a harbinger of a, a larger problem and something that we might face in, in the future. Some bigger difficulties yeah, could right. arise. Right. Absolutely. So you're kind of more, we'll, we'll play, we'll, we'll play guest co-host today. We'll just kind of chop okay. it up Two okay. podcast hosts <laughs> yeah, just talking about politics. So like I said, I found out earlier this week, last week that you had a video that was pulled off uh, your channel by YouTube. And again, this isn't some catastrophic collapse or censorship of your entire channel. You're not, you haven't been run off the platform, but you're right to say right. like this, is this something, you know, is this a, a wave, the wave of the future? Tell our audience today exactly what happened. What was the nature of that video just before we move on? Okay. Well, it's Ben Burgess's video. So he uh, has been making videos for us pretty regularly. He hasn't been on the channel for like two weeks, but that's just because he's been too busy on other people's podcasts, which I'm glad about. Um, but he uh, was making videos regularly, and one of them was aimed at Ben Shapiro. In fact, a number of them have been aimed at Ben Shapiro. But this one was particularly about Shapiro's um, stance towards uh, the Palestinians and uh, his opinions about American Jews and about Israel. So uh, Ben Burgess felt that it was incumbent upon him to debunk um, the arguments that Shapiro makes around those issues. And you know, that's what he does. He's got this book out called Logic for the Left or Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And he's trying to engage right-wing arguments and, and arguments on the left uh, in a more rigorous, logical way, less emotive way. And yeah, uh, we talked about that last week. And Shapiro is a, a standard sparring partner there because he, you know, presents himself as like master, master libertarian logician. Uh, you know, was sniveling. I can't, I can't stand that guy, Doug. So tell, yeah. tell, <laughs> yeah. so tell us on what grounds? On what grounds was this video removed? Uh, well, what did they take it offense it, to? It, it, we violated community guidelines is what the grounds were officially. I mean, I can bring up the email, but. But that was – it was vague as to what specifically – I mean obviously it's going to be vague. It's what specifically made our video the uh, the subject of removal. And also I should point out that this video was demonetized and beyond de being demonetized, it was suppressed from its uh, original uploading date. So, So it was – uh, because the title of the video, and I, I think this is the reason why, but it was not stated as such. The title of the video was anti-Semitism. Uh, what, you know, what Ben Shapiro gets wrong about anti-Semitism, uh, Israel and American Jews. Okay. <laughs> so that's going to trigger sure. a filter somewhere. Some algorithm yeah. when they see American Jews, it's like, ah, uh, uh, we, we need to, we need to have uh, human eyes look over this particular video to see if, if it's you know, downright Nazi propaganda or what happened. So, so it's un your understanding that there were human eyes that looked this over and, and made that call. Well, we appealed the decision to suppress the video, to put it behind a content warning, um, originally. 
and that was supposed to send it through to human review and it we failed in our appeal so we made a big stink well not a huge stink but we put out another video talking about that and then uh someone posted the original video on their channel with and it didn't get suppressed and and then we sort of just moved on but i discovered recently and i've discovered 10 days after the fact <laughs> actually because it just got buried under other emails that that video had been taken down altogether on the 5th of june and yeah. so 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 let's let, let's talk about the context of why this is so important um, we could just kind of dove right into it, which is fine. Um, we're, yeah. just, we're just two uh, podcast hosts chopping it up today on the A side. So let's talk about the broader context of why this is so troubling. So there are a number of downright nasty and reprehensible content creators, both on YouTube and Twitter, that have been uh, booted off the platform altogether. And, you know, it's hard for people like us uh, to cry, you know, uh, crocodile tears for these these people. They're they're racist. They're abysmal. They're on the alt right. Sometimes worse, you know. Well, the they're ones I know about Alex about Alex Jones, and then and that's really the one I know who got booted off the platform. The other one that's come up recently is Stephen Crowder, and he was his channel was demonetized, but he's still there, as far as I know. And um, you know, I don't think it's I I don't like Crowder. Obviously, I don't think he's the same as Alex Jones. Um, uh, the circumstances are different around the two figures. Was there? But is there someone who I'm forgetting that also got kicked off, or that's a big name that I don't. I don't keep. I, unfortunately, like I said, maybe I'm ill prepared for this particular discussion. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't present myself as an expert on this matter. I usually see those headlines, and I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. That that's shit happens. You know, moving on. This is terror. This is terrifying. We live under this corporate oligarchy. They completely control. Uh, you know, our means of communication in society today. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, so I don't present myself a, as an expert on this matter at all, but I mean, I'm sure listeners out there are probably, you know, screaming to their smartphones. It's so-and-so you idiot, this person and that person and this guy and this figure. But, um, point being is that there, there seems to be a drive, uh, on uh, these large platforms to more increasingly filter and monitor and weed out bad apples. We have seen, uh, Facebook, for example, face, tremendous amount of scrutiny in the, you know, the halls of power in Congress, having congressional hearings over these things. Zuckerberg uh, has not done a very good job of defending himself, making him, him look any less reprehensible in front of the public. Right. Calls to break up Facebook, to regulate Facebook as a public utility, as you would, you know, as the FC uh, under the aegis of the FCC. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that here in a moment. But, but what you've, you've, what's resulted from this is you've, you've seen Facebook, uh, and other platforms align themselves with some really shady actors uh, to to try to determine, you know, the civility or the legitimacy or the the truthiness, you know, in terms of this fake news scare that's been going for the past two years of certain content creators. And of course, this falls down the hardest on the far right. But we've seen a number of of left wing outlets face scrutiny due to their alleged Russia ties. Uh, due to um, you know a lot of people who were defending the Venezuelan regime, uh, you know have have been attacked and demonetized and and uh, deplatformed in a variety of ways, and so here we are with zero books falling under uh, in the crosshairs. Like, what does this mean? Is this an intensification? And what does this budding socialist media sphere? Uh, how do, how are we going to defend ourselves against this onslaught? from platform capitalism. Yeah, so I find it very difficult to figure out when a decision is made for political reasons and when it's made for economic or you know financial reasons within the company and uh the two those two things sort of get intertwined as well but but it's clear enough that when a company like Facebook is is under pressure from the federal government uh because it's at the center of a story around Russian interference in our elections, uh, you know, and fake news, that when uh, left channels get either suppressed or or left left wing or right wing uh, Facebook pages get suppressed or booted off, that you can see kind of a cause and effect relation there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but when it comes to the YouTube stories, 
that uh, have been happening lately, it's less clear. And it's because there's another factor which uh, has been talked about a lot on YouTube. And in fact, there's been like a, a sequence of what's been called adpocalypses on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. This is really important, you know, because it's, it's one thing for the Atlantic Council to partner with Facebook and just boot people off and try to decipher, you know, what's real news versus fake news. But there's a much more insidious and in, in capitalist, capitalistically driven uh, motive or outcome or or what have you. People are being starved of resources. Uh, Crowder was demonetized. Talk to us about the adpocalypse. This is kind of happening in stages, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, well, in terms of it's just a, another form of pressure that these these companies face is the pressure from their advertisers, and that's probably the most the one that they're looking at the most, right? Uh, uh, so they can might be able to stave off pressure from the government for longer than they can from their advertisers. And what happened not so long ago was that it was discovered that some channels on YouTube, uh, channels that maybe were produced by families or uh, for, were produced uh, with, with children in mind, as the market being you know parents and children, um, were being sought out and um, commented upon by pedophiles. So they would go into these channels and then they would say, leave a, 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 a mark of when – so what moment in the video would be a good thing to look at. <laughs> so they put down you know, a minute and a second and, 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 and then people would find these videos and be able to have their jollies that way I guess and it's disgusting. And but what that what, – when that was exposed, then – the advertisers didn't want to be, you know, related. You know, didn't want to have a relationship with these channels anymore. They didn't want their products to be related to these uh, channels. There's another word; I, it's not coming to me. But the point is that then YouTube decided that they had to crack down on comments and punish channels and creators for the comments on their videos. So that's just that's a few months back. And there was a big demonetization that happened there, and uh, people were very concerned about how are they going to manage their comments, especially the more popular channels where they're getting thousands of comments. And uh, so it was a difficult situation, and it, it sort of just faded from people's minds. But I think that uh, that what we're facing now um, seems to be coming out of this sort of the Crowder scandal. Uh, but it's in fact just a follow-up to that. It's like, okay, we're going to really start imposing these community standards for financial reasons, and um, we're going to be seeking out any channel that might be controversial enough to cause us trouble in terms of ad revenue because we want to keep our YouTube brand as clean as possible. And then you throw in the recent New York Times article and some others like it, which – claim that YouTube is radicalizing uh, young men uh, to the to and getting them involved with the alt right and so they have a they have a PR problem and enforcing community standards through algorithm is one way of solving it um, you know it's better to you know shoot first and ask questions later and I think from their perspective so, so backtracking just a second, just so folks don't uh, – we don't presume any knowledge. Steven Crowder, popular uh, YouTube pr producer or content creator. I think he's on The Blaze. Is he, does he still have a show on The Blaze? I think he does. Yeah. I don't yeah. watch it, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even sure how you'd go about getting that channel, right? Like, I mean, it's only your cable is it, package. Is that just another Is it all YouTube? online only? Okay. I, I have no idea. Yeah, uh, me but, either. Yeah, but his segment on YouTube, I th believe it's called Louder with Crowder or something to that effect. Uh, Alt-right, super right-wing libertarian, just kind of edgelord – type of dude um, a lot of people know him because he was memed he went to a college campus and sat down behind yes, a table with a yes. sign that said i don't know feminism is bad change my mind or something like that and and then people put other things on the sign uh so when i tried to explain this story to my uh wife and kids uh i just said you know the guy the the, the change my mind guy and yeah like, oh, change yeah. my mind meme guy sitting behind yeah. like a fold-up table in a college campus with a white uh you know piece of cardboard paper or whatever yeah right. that guy. And so with a camera attached to the if you look carefully he's got a camera attached to the table what he's doing is collecting 
college students for his yeah. channel. Right. right. He's, he's got, he has an onlooker with a, either a hidden camera or kind of nonchalantly, uh, you know, uh, filming from, from a yeah. distance. There's it's actually, very much in line camera with, attached to the table too. I looked at it more carefully. There's this camera attached to the table. Anyway, go, go ahead. Yeah. Ben, ben Burgess and I talked quite a lot about this last week about, you know, the way in which these types of people uh, just love to debate like second year university students. Like they can't, they can't even be bothered to, to debate grown adults, uh, not to suggest <laughs> that university students are, are all shit for brains, but let's be honest, right? A lot of these people are just coming to their radical ideas for the first time. And it takes, it takes a little while to. They should be encouraged, you know, I should be encouraged to, to think and ask questions rather than just being sort of entrapped by these like faux logic, uh, pedants, you know, they're in the people, they're just there to get them wound up and they do a pretty good job. And, Look, yeah. I don't have a lot of nice things to say about that <laughs> okay. that variant of like radical liberalism, rad libs, or or whatever you know. I've, I've called them on my show previously, but uh, but but nonetheless, like they're just fucking kids. Anyway, Crowder was running ads on his YouTube channel, making a shitload of money as these big top uh, creators do. Yeah, although it's, he's been the other thing about him is he was been demonetized. Most of his videos were demonetized already. For like the same reason that maybe our video would be demonetized because it just got caught in the algorithm. If you're talking about transgender, transgender issues or you're talking about, you know, homosexuality or whatever you're talking about. Yeah. So to, to backtrack on this really quickly, a Vox journalist, Carlos Maza, uh, brought to the public's attention several instances where Crowder used homophobic slurs in his videos and YouTube just threw down a blanket uh, demonetization. Now what, what you were talking about before, a lot of people's videos were demonetized for using like aggressive language. So like, for example, if you were a progressive political channel and you said, you know, AOC destroys this Republican congressman and reduces him to a weeping pile of mush or whatever. Like if that was the title, like these really clickbaity titles that you see. Yeah. Those videos were getting demonetized. The ones that I write every week. Yeah. The, <laughs> those were getting demonetized. And, and it's just sort of like we want to sort of reduce this histrionic language that, you know, encourages people to, you know, um, use kind of this like really hostile – like what was getting demonetized even more than that was just like, you know, uh, drone strikes in Yemen or uh, massacre there or anything that had a reference to something that was violent or hateful would be – whether or not you were decrying it or supporting it, it didn't really matter. It was just like trigger words. So yeah, I think before we move forward, I want to be really clear about like what we're not doing here. Uh, like one thing I'm thoroughly uninterested in pursuing in the course of this this buddy chat, this chat between uh, podcast pals that we're having here, Doug, is pursuing this kind of this way of defending free speech such that like it's it's more how do I say this? It expresses itself more in style than in substance. Which is you oftentimes see this coming from people on the left and they're like, yeah, you know, I am I am that fucking edgy Doug. I will actually defend a Nazi in order to right. defend free speech because free speech is important, you right. know, and it's like it's and look like, you know, I, I have a certain degree of sympathy for that argument. It's just that in this particular conversation, I want to do something different because that seems to be the style that you find really <laughs> choking off uh, any other on the left in terms of the, on the, you know, on the people on the side who actually defend this stuff. Now there are people who call themselves leftists who come down on the other side of things who actually think it's fine to deplatform Nazis and they'll perform all types of mental gymnastics as to why that's the case and why it's, you know, in, in the, in the spirit of anti-fascism or what have you to do that. Um, right. But, but I think that we can sort of transcend that false dichotomy and really get to the essence of platform capitalism. Right, right. Uh, uh, and I want you to explain what platform capitalism to, is to me eventually. But before we do, I'll just say, like, my position on this now is that I am for free speech, and I'm not really that interested in having the battle over the heart and soul of the left about that issue anymore. Like, that's just my position. I'm, a, I'm almost a free speech absolutist. That's it. So then – because all that is when you start arguing, well, should we defend Nazis or not, out in like in the abstract is just a contest over like what is it to be a leftist. My feeling is you have to be 
you know, a near free speech absolutist. And I can debate that all day long, but I'm not going to because we don't we agree. So um, more interesting is to say in the concrete, in the present, what are the issues around free speech that are actually active in the world? And so uh, defending the First Amendment rights of a Nazi is irrelevant when it comes to uh, someone who's on YouTube. It just the First Amendment isn't a factor. It may be informing your cultural presuppositions or your kind of feelings about the issue, but it's not what's in play. So what's in play is these other factors, what what kinds of uh, demands are being made by the government on these companies. And then more importantly, I think, or more directly, what are the economic motivations for the company to change its policies uh, around what kinds of content it will permit to be on its site. I mean, for a long time, YouTube was just a repository for any video anyone wanted to upload. That was its reason for existing. Uh, And, you know, there's, I remember there was articles written about, uh, you know, the, uh, the depths or the dark parts of YouTube. And by dark, it didn't mean, you know, uh, right wing or evil, but just the places in YouTube that are left in the dark, forgotten. Uh, And all these channels, you know, by people who are, they're just some person with a camera in their little apartment or, or, or you know, uh, old broken down home or, you know, so you just find these moments of people's lives that people you don't know, not, you know, not particularly well filmed or produced uh, far from that. Uh, these, these things that you watch and, and you ask yourself, why am I watching this? <laughs> it's out of focus and, and, and I don't know these people and they aren't particularly interesting. And yet for that reason, they're interesting. Um, but the, 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 we're at a moment now where there's like two different forces at work with say in a platform like YouTube. On the one hand, it still has this appeal as a kind of a populist medium where anyone can upload. But at the same time, it has to develop major channels and big platforms in order to attract big advertisers because no one wants to advertise on that guy's video where he's filming the birthday party that he filmed of himself by himself (laughs) where he lights his own birthday candles and blows them out, you know? Um, So so much like capitalism, there's a massive gulf between those who, who get the majority of the attention uh, versus the rest of them that get virtually none. And, you know, which is not unlike, say, you know, like the wealth inequality, you know, graph that people are used to seeing as it sort of spikes upwardly, you know, very rapidly after the top 10% and the 1% and the 0.01%. Very similar dynamics play out like surprise, surprise, uh, that, ty- that type of curve appears on these platforms that, that there are a small select few of people. So that, that's one of the groups uh, there, or those, those are the two groups you just outlined. Right. So okay. like, so here's, I actually wrote down some talking points and this might be a good moment where I might read a talking point. I bear yeah. with me, but yeah, let's do it. so the reality of the digital media environment definitely puts the old critiques of centralized corporate media to rest, even though a few corporations on the platforms that matter online because we have more variety, more opportunities for a greater diversity of opinion and people uh, who can get involved and be heard online and not only be heard but make a living doing so. But that living is mostly precarious and subjects to the whims of major corporations like Google and Facebook and YouTube. Um, and these channels are caught in a contradiction where the depth and diversity of the content which they have to have is sort of in contradiction with their ability to promote a relatively limited amount of big channels and court old media and big advertisers. So, and they have to be doing both in order for even uh, the precarious livings to be available for kind of the middle range of YouTubers. So it's, it's, that is what they're doing though, is trying to be a tech company, just a place where anyone can dump their content and a media company. 
where they yeah. curate their content. Yes, yes, yes. And this is this is the essence of platform capitalism, as it's been outlined by Nick Shreenek and and others who who have written about this stuff. Yeah, um, well, describe what because I haven't read that uh, theory too much because my feeling was that capitalism is the platform. But, <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't think I mean I don't think it necessarily. It's not one of those kind of obnoxious, you know, attempts to redefine capitalism as we know it in this really clever way. Like he's, he's doing something I think a lot more subtle that, that doesn't, um, I don't think it would conflict with, uh, you know, the, the way that you understand capitalism itself, but it's classically defined kind of in two senses. So first, um, they make money from a combination of two things. I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Uh, first they, they offer a service that, um, in essence, it becomes more valuable that the more, the more people use it. So the more people enter the platform, it becomes more valuable not only for the people who are using the platform, but certainly for the people who own and control and benefit monetarily from the platform. And there's some sense that there's a there's a there's a this kind of you just spelled it out actually quite well I think this conflictual mutual recipro- reciprocal benefit, which it, which it is a reciprocal benefit and it isn't, and it develops over time in, into the similar kind of curve, like I say, that you see in, say, wealth inequality in capitalism, such that these platforms tend to be relatively egalitarian in, 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 that, in terms of that distribution, um, except over time, it, it gives way to the, that very contradiction that you just spelled out, that it needs to, to gear itself towards these major corporations and their, their money uh, in order you know, enrich and, and, and popularize these top creators. They're oftentimes tied to larger studios so that those middle tier creators that are just barely getting by can afford to, to continue getting by. And it's also the traffic that those middle tier creators bring into the platform that make it possible for those top tier creators to, to be so goddamn popular. And right. so I mean, it, there's this weird publisher? reciprocity, but it's all, it's also, you know, it very much falls in line with the, that curve that, that you see in terms of wealth inequality. Hey, everybody, pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying my chat about platform capitalism and YouTube's recent shenanigans with Douglas Lane of Zero Books podcast. But this is the place where I have to jump in and ask for your support in order to keep this project up and running. As Doug and I are laying out throughout the course of the interview, our corporate overlords are hellbent on squeezing out the small producers like myself and like Doug, by the way. So we rely on the generous contributions of our patrons in order to keep this left media ecosystem thriving. My aim is solely to educate and motivate and connect this budding socialist left, and I need your support to help make that possible. So I humbly ask that if you enjoy DPS media on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, if you've checked out our YouTube channel and you think that that's a worthwhile enterprise in terms of capturing the youth's minds, the young minds of America, steering them away from the alt-right and the libertarian right, that is so dominant over there on that space. I ask that you head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a supporter of this project today. You'll get access to our weekly B-sides and our discord form that's available for members only that is in the works. I'm about to reopen that later this week. You can ask me questions there. You have full on access to myself and my brilliant patrons as well. So donate if you're able to do so in order to keep this free for the masses and in order to help me expand this project evermore now back to the interview yeah so as a publisher this is like hardly new in a way because the way zero books gets to continue is by having a few big books and then there are a lot of books that we publish that get neglected that um, you know sometimes they get neglected like really like i don't spend enough time on them and i'll just con- confess that i'm sorry to a few of the authors whose books probably deserve more publicity than they got but also they get neglected by the reading public they don't they don't catch they don't go they don't get uh they don't go viral people don't pay attention and that has to do with a lot of factors one of which is the platform that the authors had to begin with right burgess is an exception to that i think but but in in general our bigger books have been those that have been written by people who are already coming up on through other platforms um but the other side the thing that's weird about digital media unlike print media is that it's almost like a self-publishing uh, house because what you're doing is selling the books and that 
instance, you're so, sort of selling the books to the people who are also going to be your authors. Like you're trying to build a, an audience uh, out of people who want to produce the books. And I'm not sure if there's any publishing house. I mean, actually, some of the uh, John Hunt Publishing, some of the imprints are like that, but they're they're not quite doing what I'm talking about because the idea is that you have a group of people who are both buying all the different kinds of books or at least some of them and then writing for you as well, that your audience is your pool of authors, say. And that's what's going on with YouTube. And so that's the, that's the model. But at, so, at so this kind point, of has almost a, a pyramid of scheme kind of uh, pyramid scheme dynamic to it, right? Doesn't kind it? of, but, but you know, <laughs> it's, but it's it, being it cynical and not precise. It's metaphorical <laughs> in a more metaphorical sense, of course, uh, because the idea is you want to lure people into participating, but yet that you know damn well, you know that, that none of these upstarts are, are going to be the next Casey Neistat, for example. If, or if, some if of people them. are in one the YouTube two. world, um, right? One or two might be, but they, but that's all. That's Right. But that puts a constraint on how far you can grow because there are only so many people who are really going to want to participate on that level. And if your audience is, I mean, look, some of the most pure kind of uh, imprints out there might be exactly based on this model where they're the people reading them or the people who are also writing for them. It may be academic presses that work. Oh, academic presses definitely do. I mean, that we all know that academia is a Ponzi scheme, but anyway, (laughs) they'll actually charge you to do it, right? They'll charge you to fucking publish. Anyway, so there's that curve that we talk about showing up time and time again. In that case, it's the publishing industry that that, that benefits from the curve. Uh, But there's a second dynamic I want to throw this in because it's it's not not, one other thing about YouTube. It's like YouTube has to get beyond that, right? They have to also just be attractive to a mass audience. I see. I see. Yeah. And have people who raise are raised up to such a level that they become major players to the massive YouTube people who don't make anything but watch. And and so, you know, it has to be both like a new media empire of participating, uh, you know, interactive uh, audiences, but then also kind of act like television. Yeah, right. And, and, and the way so, that you the way that you create that pure audience is to make the barrier for entry so impossibly high. That people just sort of reconcile themselves to just being a consumer, rather than a, a co-producer of of that of that um, of that platform, right? Such that everyone once had their channel where they talk about what their cat did that day, uh, and nowadays, like I said, you can't get monetized unless you have one thousand subscribers and four thousand hours of watch time over the past three hundred sixty-five days. I know that all too well because I'm on that train. I'm chasing that train right now um, <laughs> to the point where I can maybe get a little, uh, earn a little bit of extra income from my YouTube pursuits to, to, to pay my bills and feed myself. Right. Uh, I know how hard that is. And, and so that's what they've done. They've used this kind of market competitive, this market logic to weed out these small, small potatoes creators and, and such. They've created a, a large audience of just pure consumers, pure I, viewership. I think what you're talking about is really important. I think it's important for us to realize this and then for a lot of people who uh, are out there listening to us and, and reading what we write to realize this as well, which is that the left that you can see online is the entrepreneurial left. <laughs> okay. A lot of people hate that word, so qualify it for us. What do you well, mean by entrepreneurial left? I mean, left? these are all people who are, uh, to a large extent, I mean, there are some exceptions. There are academics, but – but the ones that are really visible online are that are uh, are people who are working on creating their small little businesses through di- creating digital content, and they're entrepreneurs in the sense that they're in a precarious place. They're not, you know, they're not sitting in some company with uh, getting drawing a paycheck. I mean, I actually, <laughs> but but uh, not a big one. Um, but for the most part. These leftists online, especially on YouTube, are all little mini entrepreneurs competing for your clicks. Yeah, and true. that that is good. No matter what those people are like, that is going to shape the kinds of things they they produce. No doubt. And if you don't, if you swim against the current, you pay the price. And I think one of the things that like the, the difference on the left right now, which is why every Tom, Dick and Harry has a podcast now, um, is that we don't have those artificial means of sort of. Um, forcing people to to just become just kind of uh, passive consumers of this stuff because because the barrier to entry right now anyway is so low that anybody with a microphone and a laptop can 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 go on SoundCloud for very little overhead and produce like a lo-fi podcast and if they have enough buddies online and they produce a niche and they they stir up enough drama 
and start a Twitter war or whatever, you know, they can, they can now have their own podcast and do their own thing. And, and that's fine. But, uh, but, but what I want to suggest is that the production of this top tier of content producers and, and then the rest of us who are just pure viewers, that's an artificially constructed thing, right? It's historically constituted via means that are oftentimes going behind our backs and, and, and who ends up being placed in those positions versus of, of, of creating the kind of cultural productions of that society versus who ends up passively, um, you know, observing them, consuming them. That those are, these are political, economic and class, you know, oriented outcomes. And we're watching this happen in real time via these kind of regulatory mechanisms that you yourself just ran afoul of. It's really fascinating stuff and horrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. The horrifying part comes in from the second component. I'm going to throw this in really quickly because I'd be remiss in ignoring it. It's a correlate of the first, but it's, it's really a second, which is that in the process of producing this platform that is in a conflicted way, mutually beneficial of the consumers and the producers and capital and money in the platform itself, they're collecting everybody's data in the interim. Everybody's data, whether you're a user, a producer, whether you are an advertiser yourself, just performance and metrics are just being collected relentlessly, which are then sort of channeled back into the value of the platform. And then ultimately that it leads to monopolization. Um, It's an inevitable outcome of the growth of these platforms. And then you end up where we are today, where you have these major, I mean, this number, we're not just talking about YouTube or Twitter. We're talking about Uber or, um, uh, Airbnb or whatever. And we, and, and most of these companies are now even, especially like Facebook and their failed IPO. It's the most notorious case. They're really still struggling on how to monetize this stuff, but it's incredibly important. Um, I know like Aaron Bastani over at Novara Media just wrote fully automated luxury communism, getting a lot of gruff of uh, a guff from that book. Um, I think it's an important contribution. Uh, another guy I've had on the show, a, a former uh, Corbinite economics advisor to John McDonnell, um, uh, James Meadway has written a lot about the coming importance of platform capital and data, you know, monopolization. This is the way of the future. Future value is going to come from control over data and information. And so that's the other correlate of this platform capitalism thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, so this is something that I uh, might have a, a, a somewhat different perspective on because I look at, um, the data and and the emphasis on the tech world as a symptom of something sort of strange going on in our uh, overall economy. Like I'm not I I'm not qualified to say how strange. I mean, like I haven't really looked at the empirical data, but but you know we've got a huge sector. I mean, I feel like it's aligned with or kind of echoes financialization. No, you're you're absolutely ex- – and, and you're on to something. And that's really um, that's really intuitive of you to even come up on that having not read this literature because that's actually very much in line with, like I say, uh, Meadway and, and Aaron Bastani as well. It's kind of – it's a – it's an outgrowth of the restructuring of our economy and these financialized ways of of getting away from this kind of post-war pr- productivism that that drove the economy. It's now we're you know if you're in an economy that's that's grounded in extractivism, whether you're talking about you know finance, real estate, uh, whatever the case may be, you have to find new ways to pursue value. And right. So yeah, that's so you're you're on to it. I think you're. But you're, it's you're it's right precarious point. because and some the reason why I think of, I thought it was uh, echoing financialization is because I think of it at, as relying on basically rent in order to pr- produce a profit and sort of a orthodox or you know at least pure Marxist perspective. What produces real value is labor time and production of commodities, not, not collecting rent. So you're not going to produce new value for the economy by just owning land and charging people to like sleep uh, in, in your in your apartment complex or whatever. You know, that's not producing value. That's taking and redistributing the surplus of value created by labor, which is necessary part of the economy, but it's not the source of value. So if you have huge parts of your economy, the most profitable industries being – these digital tech companies that are only collecting rent and they're not producing value, 
then that seems to me to sort of be a, you know, make me feel like the economy's not so great, that this is some sort of artificial bubble again, and that, that we are going, we're looking down the barrel of a gun when it comes to the health of our overall economy, that, you know, the 2008 recession may be on the horizon again, but just, just because where so much of the uh, money is being cycled into these efforts to, you know, advertise and then collect rents. Uh, and, and so I guess I'd have to look at the numbers to see how much of in productive investment is actually going on as well. But, you know, you've got massive productive investment of smartphones, but the biggest, most profitable company doesn't like produces like 13% of the smartphones that are in the world. The Apple makes like 90% of the profits and produces 13% of the, the smartphones. So that seems way out of whack. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I mean, me... just to, just to clarify, because if, if people don't know the sort of finer points of Marxian political economy, first of all, shame on you. Why, why do you have better things to do than to rifle through 900 pages of capitals, one volume, uh, volume one through three? <laughs> but, uh, uh, if not, check out uh, Democratic Socialism 101 on YouTube and DPS Media YouTube channel. It's coming up soon. Yes, click on all the ads. Make me rich. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. Zero Books is running a capital reading group. And yes. You should go and join that instead. Forget yes. His, you know? uh, how about both? You know, a little okay, solidarity both. here. All right. All right. That's fair. We're co-hosts today. <laughs> Um, no, but so, so the idea there is, I mean, and, and I, this is in, in a, in a sense, kind of pushing back on you gently to try to get you to clarify what you, what, what your concern is. Cause there's nothing in, in Marx's capital or Marxian political economy in general that suggests that an economy can't go on without producing value, which, which must come from, um, exploited labor power. It's just that that economy and that society will be, you know, incredibly crisis prone, which it require that society to 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 throw up uh, political, social, or other mechanisms to to handle those crises. Which is really, I think, precisely the root of the fear here. When the rise of platform capitalism is such that, um, on the one hand, it requires a, a passive you know collectivity of consumers and, and producers of of data to draw from. But then once that data is is collected and harnessed in the right ways by private monopoly capital there's this there's this fear it's almost a kind of apocalyptic fear if you take if you take these people very seriously and Aaron Bastani has been he's not necessarily um I'd say innovating these ideas but he's collecting them and synthesizing them in a really interesting way for for a kind of future oriented socialist project and that once once this data collection reaches a certain extent you almost get this dialectical shift wherein it's like it's too late, right? It's almost kind of like after, after the toasters uh, gain consciousness, right? After the singularity, like we're fucked, right? Because I mean, th- you know, in, in, you know, I mean, he talks about it in his book, and I'm going to have him on the show pretty soon here. So I'm just kind of pr- prefacing these arguments. And uh, a lot of people out there have the wrong ideas about this book. People be patient. All right. It's really important to read and grapple with ideas before you dismiss things. And, and even if you ag- disagree with the fundamental claims, you can still glean some knowledge, right? Some knowledge, some nuggets here and there. So his idea is that, you know, eventually you're talking about the class privilege is going to render a very small slice of the population uh, virtually, um, like genetically and biologically superior. Uh, When you talk about gene modification, when you talk about people's ability to modify, you know, elements of their biology you're going to be we're going we're walking down the path of irreversible class-based distinctions and sure this is very future oriented but like this is this is how capital and power harnesses those contradictions that you're talking to those fundamental structural political economic contradictions well have you seen the movie sorry to bother you so, I mean, I would be uh, equally concerned about the genetic modifications that would go on to, to create superior workers. Totally, uh, totally. That, but because when I, and so what I'm going to say next is this. I do think that capitalism relies upon the production of value, and it goes into crisis when the rate of that production of value declines, and that the crisis in capitalism is its own solution to uh, the – decline in the rate of profit 
or the decline in the rate of production value. So that, uh, but that what that means is that capitalism can never escape the need for a working class. That if you, yeah, that, right, that I see. So we are always going to ultimately have to, you know, come back to tracking or produce, you know, tracking the amount of socially necessary labor that's necessary to make commodities and uh you know that that means we'll always have to have a working class and that means that the productive sector is always going to be the value producing sector under under capitalism so we're not going to be able to have a capitalism uh that just operates on the level of you know the culture and the manipulation of symbols and flows of credit and all of that uh, and and what that means is, on the one hand, that we, there's no utopian solution to keep capitalism without capitalism. On the other hand, it means some of the fears that we have about the future aren't going to come to pass either. Um, I, I I think that. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this: Is capitalism necessarily intertwined or dependent upon liberalism as we know it, or no, no, is it possible for capitalism to devolve and exist? quite successfully in terms of the logic of capital in the way that you've just laid out, I think quite well, under a much more restrictive and, and illiberal form of society wherein civil liberties are choked off and not just in terms of like formal civil liberties, like on the books, I'm talking about actual fucking genomic biological liberties that we might understand in, in a weird kind of futuristic way and such that, you know, people – you know, the wealthy are literally able to stamp out disease and sickness and illness and genetic deficiencies and such that they're able to live 100 years longer than the rest of us. We're just sort of doomed to produce value in a, in a highly restricted and, and uh, dominated way. Uh, so maybe both could be true. Maybe capitalism, you're right to say that a working class must create value, but, but we will be harnessed in ways that uh, we couldn't have imagined today right i mean i it's really difficult to predict right but but i certainly think that something like china uh the, the model there could be the future for most capitalist countries and that the what you'd see is kind of a, a liberal free competition between totalitarian authoritarian states <laughs> right right um but not between companies within those states so much um and so, yeah, I mean, it gets we have to get you know into the weeds to figure out what's going on and and be able to argue these kind of fine theoretical points, um, even though we also have to act without knowing everything. And uh, and we've got these get back to the beginning of the conversation. We've got these structural impediments to our own understanding. We we don't talk about the things that matter most uh, as often as we ought to, and when we do, we often find ourselves in trouble for one reason or another. Um, so for instance, you might very well get demonetized. <laughs> so to bring it back to that. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think like that's the, we're just kind of, we're spitballing on the implications of what, what I'm calling platform capitalism. And I think you've reluctantly come along with at least in a, in a qualified sense. And because this is really the kind of slippery slope that we're trying to assess, like uh, first zero books, was censored and I said nothing. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> then the then the then the half humans, half Cylon ruling class came after me with their laser guns, uh, <laughs> and their and their sexy cyborgs that I couldn't resist. Uh, but the no, but the real into, truth is, anyway, yeah. in reality, here's Battlestar Galactica fans out there. Anyway, the, the, <laughs> the truth is that it goes like this: first, zero books got censored. And I wrote a clickbait title about it and got clicks and money. <laughs> then I got censored too. And now yeah. we're both off the channel or off the platform. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can ride, you can ride that gravy train for a little while, but you know, eventually we'll all be ruled by our Cylon overlords. Unless, unless Doug, I try to remain hopeful here on DPS, unless we can harness these platforms uh, with the power of, popular sovereignty and, and democracy. And and one of the things that one of the directions I'm actually, this is really fortuitous. This is nice. It's almost like I planned it. I didn't. We've been spitballing. It's been fun and informative, I think, but let's, let's spend the last couple moments here historicizing a bit about the rise of what we know as this kind of limited bourgeois liberal democracy that we 
thrive and survive under whichever be the case at various times and moments throughout our day. I mean, I, I like free speech, but uh, I don't like the, the dictatorship that exists, you know, in, in, in the workplace or um, under the, the strong arm of finance. It's a very conflictual type of democracy and quote freedom that we enjoy here in the United States. All leftists have that critique under their belt. Nobody salutes the land of the free and the home of the brave without a tremendous amount of caveats or even outright rejection. <laughs> so we don't have to have that conversation. However, that's to say the freedoms that we do enjoy today, we're not always uh, present, to put it lightly. Uh, a number of people, many Marxists and socialists, in fact, primarily Marxists and socialists, had to put their bodies and, their, and oftentimes their lives on the line to fight for and win these limited bourgeois liberal freedoms that we have. And that in many ways is kind of an interesting allegory for the kind of fights that lay ahead for us for platform capitalism. Because as Marx wrote, like, you know, capitalism um, operates by expanding the kind of, uh, you know, the purview of social relations, which is the increasing commodification and interconnectedness of societies. And as that's taken place, this has always taken place under the aegis of states and capital. And sort of reclaiming those spaces, those new spaces of engagement uh, for ourselves has actually been the process of democratization itself. So that, so that fighting for freedoms and winning freedoms, what we call these liberal bourgeois freedoms, and expanding democracy into wider segments of the, the population has always been a project of reclaiming for the masses society, whatever you know, totality we've, we've conjured has always been a project of claiming uh, these creations, these zombified <laughs> collective social creations uh, for the masses rather than for the exclusive use of either the ruling class, the elites, or capital. Right. I would just say that the real task for these masses is to not only claim these spaces but to transform them. And, and, and that the, the, the aim ultimately has to be to escape from – this whole, the, all that we've been talking about, the way that we, you know, the labor time is what is produces the value that directs our own activity in the world. We have to figure out a better approach to producing and distributing the world that we sh really do share socially in common. And and now, having said that very poetic thing, I want to um, plug a book. Yeah, plug away. I, <laughs> and I want to plug my own book which was written a year ago now because it just dawned on me that uh, talking about, you know, these, the fear of the AI overlords and the, you know, fully automated future uh, sort of falls right in line with my novel Bash Bash Revolution, which was about an AI that uh, I wrote it with the intention of trying to think of a way that we could replace capitalism and productive you know, the values form and all of that, the commodity form with something else. And my solution was an AI, which would take over the world and direct our activities uh, by the use of augmented reality in video games. So it seems like I should probably talk to the, the author of Fully Automated um, Luxury Communism, if for no other reason than for branding opportunities and uh, <laughs> to plug my books. Well, he's obviously a very future-oriented guy, and you're talk you're kind of getting at the gamification process, but that in itself is is very much a platform, right? Because the the essence of a game is that it needs players, and the more players it has, it not only adds value to the players themselves, but also to to the creators of the game, and it it it, it uh, progressively strengthens their power and their death grip over right. said platform and that that not it's not and it's more than just a platform like we were just saying like these you know facebook is more than just a platform it is it's literally creating it's literally capital capitalism creating new realms of social relations but these are privatized realms these are realms that are outside the purview of certainly the public and the masses and even states and I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting that states are thereby being surpassed. I don't think globalization occurs that easily. I think states are, are still very much in, in control and, and a very powerful force in, in globalization. I, I do disagree with people who thinks that who think that somehow this is a process of states being surpassed. Um, I think it's a complex relationship. But but anyway, I digress. Point being is that like I really do think we have to look back to to history to see how these fights over these new spaces that have been produced by capital, capitalism, 
um, as, as these fights for democracy and fundamental rights, because that's what we're up against today. Um, that, that, you know, go back to the slaveholders in the South. And what we saw is like, kind of like looking, projecting our notions of, uh, like human rights and decency for fuck's sake back onto the past. You'd be like, how dare these people keep a segment of society in chains? This is fundamentally wrong and morally abhorrent. And it is, Mm -hmm. but their rationale was that this was their private domain. This was their private little playground. These little feudal overlords, these little shit bags and these plantations dotted across the U.S. South and, and the North. Let's not forget them. <laughs> they had slaves too. And, and, and sharecroppers and people who, who were white farmers who were in, in all t- intents and purposes reduced to the level of slaves in, in many respects. Of course, there's it's a tremendous amount of unevenness in there. I'm not suggesting that it's the same thing. It's not the fucking same thing. Chattel slavery is different. But the point is there was a small segment of overlords who thought that this society was their private playground for the pursuance of their own desires, whatever the case those may be, up to and including murdering and raping uh, slaves. And so the fight for freedom was, was a fight to make this public set of social relations uh, – sorry, private set of social relations rendered – uh, open and democratic. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I would just add on to that that you know the, the other reason why the slaves uh, slave trade op- opened up was because it, there was a a market for the products of the those slaves and 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 there was a market for slaves and there was a market for the products of slavery and that market then you know created conditions which then built North America. And 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 Marx said, you know, the Europeans, the Europe's own industrial development relied on upon slave slave labor. I just wondered to what extent, right? Like we could actually even extend this metaphor of platform capitalism back into the past. Like, what if, like, you know, of course, it's not. You know, it couldn't have collected data in the same way. But but Marx and many others have written a lot about the innovations required in in things like bookkeeping in the advent of capitalism to render possible these these increasingly complex networks of allocation and distribution and logistics such that you know it doesn't seem like data to us like a couple scrawling you know handwritten notes on you know, with ink and paper but in 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 their day it was a tremendous uh, innovation that that was uh, that rose up alongside these expanding networks of like commodities and and, and so on yeah, this is interesting Cap- the process of capital accumulation is in- incredible. I mean, have you ever played the game Cookie Clicker? No. You know this no, what game? Is that? What is that? It's okay. It's a very simple game. Uh, there's a cookie on the screen, and you click on it, and the, when you click on it, it produces another cookie. That's the whole game. But the, the, <laughs> okay. the more you, okay. the more you click on I think I have the, seen this game, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the more you click on the cookies, the, the faster the production of cookies becomes, and you can buy items that will help you automate the process of clicking on the cookie. It's almost kind of like a performance art in, in, in a game mode. Kind it's, of, uh, it, it's the absurdity of the process it's a, that's kind of, uh, that you discover as you nonetheless do it anyway. Because like, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So you've got – and you end up with millions and millions of cookies. You have nuclear-powered yeah. cookie clickers. Uh, you know, sometimes you have, you have a t- – I actually at one point got a time machine so I could go back in time to find more cookies in the past and bring them into the future. Um, <laughs> and, and it just gets more and more elaborate. You have, That's amazing. You know, legions of grandmothers at your disposal to help you make the cookies. Um, and But all it starts with is a single click. And I kind of feel like that's – the how I understand capitalism is it starts with understanding this kind of simple value production of and the, based on labor time, and then what explodes out of that. I mean, in in thought, it's not it didn't start with someone coming up with the idea, but what what explodes out of that understanding is this elaborate mass of of you know credit systems and nuclear weapons and in, international intrigue and the, the social divisions between people and class divisions between people and but i think that's again returning to history is so crucial here and if people haven't read their ellen makeson's wood they certainly should 
to understand the specific historical condition, conditions that enabled the rise of cap, specifically capitalist social relations. And I'm going to say specific a lot here, Doug. Uh, I'm going to say it three times in the same sentence because the specificity of the specificness of specific <laughs> capital specific uh, histories. That's nice. It's really it's important. Specific. It's very specific of you. Yeah. Well, um, I, I strive for specificity. But anyway, everyone, in order to support us, should go and click subscribe on the Zero Books YouTube channel. <laughs> don't forget to don't forget to like and subscribe. You know, in my cool YouTube guy voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need a catchphrase, Doug. What's our catchphrase? You know. Well, well, our catchphrase. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Jeez, we do, but we both need yeah, one. We can't. We can't. Nah, we're, we're, we'll never su- succeed in the platform if we don't have a catchphrase. Anyway, uh, this the, has been a fun the, chat. This has been a lot of fun. Defeat the value form. That's my catchphrase. Defeat the value form. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. maybe a bazinga. I think that's taken. <laughs> that's good. I think that one's taken. Yeah. Anyway, this has been a great chat. Everybody, uh, check out Zero Books. Support them. And then them. go to his Patreon to get the B side because we're going to talk some more. Yeah, we are. We are two buds, uh, two podcast pals. Maybe that's what I'll call this episode: the podcast pals strike again, talking about platform capitalism, uh, okay. or should I go like super histrionic, like? Uh, Zero books destroyed by YouTube censorship. Don't miss it. You know, like that is all that, caps. That's the way to go. That is, that's that's how you capture those clicks, baby. Yeah. 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 Click, click. For this is, <laughs> that, could um, be, that could be the title. Click, yeah, click. I think yeah. that, and that could be our, our catchphrase. Too. Click, click. For that is uh, Moses and the prophets. I think that's what Marx wrote once. Uh, anyway, signing off. Everybody, we're going to be talking uh, about even more uh, like obscenely nerdy topics on the B side, but in a very accessible way, jumping off from our conversation we've just had on the A side today. We're going to talk about this distinction between political economy on the one hand versus culture and signification and meaning on the other. It was uh, brought to a head uh, 30, 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago now between a, a handful of scholars on either side and, you know, uh, reading over this debate happened between Larry Grossberg uh, on the one side who is, uh, he's a Duke, I think even now kind of in the humanities cultural studies field. And then uh, Nicholas Garnum on the other, who's kind of in the media studies communications field. And, and I think it, it was like 24 a, years ago, not quite 30. I want 20, to point out. Yeah. I'm 20, not, not that old yet. Yeah, it's all the same. <laughs> It's like I was a small child either way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not the, the Gen Xers. Hey, I'm old. I mean, you know, I, I'm not cool anymore, Doug. So you got your wish, right? Yeah, hey. well. One of the most satisfying things cool. you can do is to watch like the previous tragically hip generation hit 30 and realize they're not cool anymore. It's yeah. really satisfying. I, when I turn 30 now, I, maybe we're not. When I turned 30, I literally like around like 11.59, I was on the phone with a friend going, I am in my 20s. I am the coolest guy in the world. I'm, oh, no. It's all over. <laughs> Did you get really achy? Like lots yeah. of gray hairs popping up everywhere? Yeah, everything just like it, um, I lost my sense of, sense of rhythm. I didn't know who any of the contemporary pop stars were. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's coming for you. It's coming for you, people. If if you haven't if you haven't hit that milestone yet, all right. So we're going to be talking about that divide. And if it sounds abstract and above your head, uh, have no fear. We're going to break it down for you. And it's 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 a conversation that we've had a lot on DPS. This is a. That's, I'll put it this way. Uh, Vivek Chibber uh, is not so subtle when he when he talks about this debate. Uh, he has he's been uh, he's come down very strongly on the side of political economy. Um, I've had a number of other guests who have tried to present a, a more nuanced perspective, uh, but nonetheless, it is highly relevant and topical to the conversation we've had on the A side today. So we will You're leave. You're not going to get a nuanced perspective from me today. Yeah, Doug's <laughs> going all in. Yeah. I'm a former I'm a former uh, culture studies kid, which I have nothing really that nice to say about culture study cultural studies. I'm very sorry if any of my former colleagues or friends or audience members that are more sympathetic to that out there. Um, if you like your Raymond Williams. And your Stuart Hall, although I don't like to put those two in the same camp. They don't deserve to be in the same camp. Uh, anyway, you might be disappointed, but I, it's going to be a fun, nuanced chat. Enough of the wind-up. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash deadpun. It's okay to be side. Signing off, uh, one co-host uh, to another. Doug, thanks for joining us on DPS. Let's do these collaborations more often. It's been a blast. Yes, absolutely.
And that concludes the A-Side Chat with Douglas Lane of Zero Books. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a nice little departure from the norm. It got quite heavy there at the end, uh, theory and history-wise, but uh, we wanted to have a nice little fun chat, a little change of pace, let our hair down, if you will, and talk about some recent goings-on in the media, left media creation world. Uh, give you some inside baseball and some conversations that some of you probably, you know, don't really think about on a day- day-to-day basis. As far as most of you are concerned, uh, these YouTube videos and these podcasts just kind of magically show up into your devices on a weekly basis. And you listen to them as you're doing the dishes or going shopping or toiling away at, at your soul-sucking job, whatever the case may be. But just know that there are a lot of people working behind the scenes in order to make this thing possible. I know that if you're anything like myself, my own political development has benefited tremendously from podcasts and from left media. And as Doug mentioned earlier in the interview, we are all quite precarious, even the bigwigs. It's like like the Jacobins of the world. You know, Baskar Sankara came on here and uh, reiterated the fact that just because you see Jacobin in your newsfeed every day doesn't mean that they're swimming in cash. We all are out here struggling and striving to keep the politics alive, and we need your support in order to help uh, us do that. So if you enjoy this program on a weekly basis and you want to get access to the B-side that's going to be dropping on Friday with Doug, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of the society today. Not only will you benefit from the generous rewards, but you will help us continue to expand this project and reach ever more minds. We want to we want to convert all of those progressives into good, solid socialists. We want to convert all of those liberals, those wishy-washy libs into socialists. You know, most of us were not born this way. We had a transformation of some kind, and I want to help that transformation along for many thousands, if not millions of people across the world. So your generous support can help us do that. Thanks to patrons past and present. To the patrons out there, we'll see you on Friday. To everybody else, same time, same place next week.